The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. And on August 21st, you can join other conservationists all over the world in supporting Community Conservation Day. It's a day for anyone to give their time and or dollars back to their local ecosystems and favorite conservation causes. For more information on how you can participate, visit fishandwildlife.org. Welcome to the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast with your host, Nate Thomas. Flying solo today for the first time, I think, since we've started our podcast. Both Andy and Micah couldn't make it today, so I'm running this one alone. Today's episode is with Raina Tile of the Missouri Department of Conservation. <clears throat> Raina is a wild turkey and roughed grouse biologist, and we have her on today to kind of discuss, you know, turkeys in our state. Um little bit of a background about them, all that kind of good stuff, uh, the different predators they've got. And then we get into um, the decline in the population in our state. Uh, a lot of you listeners out there probably noticed over the past decade or whatever, uh, people kind of starting to be worried about the steady decline in our state um, in the population of Turkey. So Raina kind of talks about why that might be. Uh, some things they're <clears throat> kind of doing to maybe fix that or at least try to find out why it might be going downward. Um, and we kind of get into all that. Uh, it's a pretty good episode, and she does a great job kind of spelling all that out. So before we get into it, um, it's sponsor time. So let's talk about Alps Outdoors. Check them out at alpsbrands.com. They've got a nice selection of all kinds of cool stuff um, from packs to tents to you name it. Um, they've got it for the most part. So check them out at alpsbrands.com. And without wasting any more time, we are going to get into today's episode with Raina Tile of MDC. This is the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast. All right, with us today is Raina Tile with Missouri Department of Conservation. Raina, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about this subject today, which is no surprise. I pretty much say that on every episode. I'm excited, so I need to come up with a new term. But um, I am excited to talk to you. So before we get into this subject today, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do for MDC? Yeah, so my name is Raina Tile, and I am the wild turkey and ruffed grouse biologist for the Missouri Department of Conservation. So um, I oversee or lead our wild turkey management program, um, but I also oversee our ruffed grouse restoration program um, and things related to that as well. Gotcha. So are you from Missouri or were you born and raised here or are you a transplant? I am a transplant. So, um, well, originally born north of the border in Canada, um, but I grew up and spent most of my life in Michigan. Gotcha. Um, and then I ended up moving to Ohio for uh, school after I graduated high school. So 
lived in Ohio for, lived and worked there for about five years. Um, and then after that, it became time for me to kind of spread my wings and do the typical wildlife tech job seasonal thing that a lot of wildlife biologists end up doing. So um, from there, I ended up in North Dakota for work for a little bit um, and then ended up in grad school at West Virginia University. But my research was actually on wild turkeys out in South Dakota. So I would split my time um, working out in South Dakota and researching birds there and then going back to West Virginia for school in the falls. And that's where I came to Missouri from. So I was living in West Virginia, finishing my thesis and doing all of that fun stuff uh, when I was offered this job for MDC. And I moved here almost two years ago. So I've been with the department for almost two years now um, and have just spent that time, you know, learning about all the wonderful things that Missouri has to offer. Yeah. So you have been all over that. That is an interesting, different places you've you've been and live that's cool um which yeah, leads it's pretty which, typical for someone in yeah. this sort of field because you kind of have to just go where the opportunities take you and um sometimes they can be few and far between so right uh, this is a really great opportunity and i'm very happy to be here in missouri so you've been here for about two years so so far what is your favorite thing about the missouri outdoors I think maybe just the diversity in things that you can do here in the state. I mean, down in the Ozarks, you have more of a, you know, steep mountainy terrain. You have these really beautiful crystal clear spring fed streams that um, you can paddle and fish. Um, and then, you know, you've got lakes and things that you can recreate on. And even in North Missouri, where it's just a little bit more flat and more you know, prairie and open space, which I typically really like as well. Um, so I think that's probably my favorite part is just how many different opportunities you have here to do hunting and fishing and hiking and camping and all kinds of things in the outdoors. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And only being here two years, you probably haven't, you know, even seen, uh, all of it yet. And I, I agree that a lot of people say that is as their answer is the, the diversity we have is, is pretty cool. Um, you have a bunch of States in one really. So, yeah. And you're right. I haven't been able to explore probably even half of it yet, but, um, I do more and more every year. I've been able to go out and crappie fish with some friends and I've been turkey hunting for a couple of years now and, um, here in Missouri. And so, I'm learning about all these different activities and maybe next time I'm on this podcast, I'll have a favorite, but right now I'm just still learning about all the different things I can do. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. I, I will accept that answer. It's, it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, so kind of like I talked about in the show, um, or as you and I were talking about before we started recording, um, we're going to talk about the Turkey in Missouri and, you know, in, when we get into the guts of it, we're going to really talk about the decline in the turkey population in our state, which, you know, you can just do a Google search and there's plenty of people that are starting to worry about it and, you know, all that stuff. And MDC is, is obviously doing things to to look at it and try to figure out what's going on with that too. But I thought before we get into that, it'd be a good thing to give just the listener a a nice snapshot of about the history of the turkey in Missouri and some some nice information about turkeys. Um, so why don't we start off with just the history of the turkey in our state? Um, there's a, 
a lot of our listeners that probably know this, but at one point in time, the turkey was either damn near gone or gone in this state a long time ago. So well, why don't you just kind of give a breakdown of the history first, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, so we're lucky here in Missouri that we never completely lost the wild turkey from our landscape. Um, some of our states farther north um, or some of our neighboring states weren't so lucky. Um, basically, you know, when Europeans started settling the country, um, there was a lot of timber harvesting to build infrastructure, um, and we didn't have you know, wildlife management back then either. So there was no control over the number of birds that could be harvested in different places. And because of that habitat loss and also just, you know, commercial harvest and over harvesting of our wild turkey resource and other resources, um, you know, we nearly lost turkeys from the state. Uh, There was a remnant population that (laughs) maintained itself in the steepest and deepest parts of the Ozark region that were frankly difficult to get into to harvest timber and other things. Um, So those turkeys were able to survive. And it wasn't really until, you know, the creation of this idea of conservation and, and wildlife, you know, resource agencies that um, we started to see the rebound in, in the turkey population. And, and that was mostly due to some really intensive habitat management down in the parts of the Ozarks where we had remnant turkeys here in Missouri. Um, there was also a moratorium on harvest, so you couldn't harvest wild turkeys anymore. Um, once those populations kind of began to grow in that area, it wasn't until the 1950s when we developed a technology that that would allow us to capture wild birds and move them places that the restoration era really got started. Um, there had been some attempts to kind of bolster wild turkey populations by releasing pen-raised birds, but they just didn't have the wherewithal to survive out there. So once you know our populations kind of increased through these really intensive habitat management practices and um, you know not allowing anyone to harvest the birds, and the development of the rocket net, which allowed us to capture flocks of wild birds. Um, that's when we really started trapping and transferring birds throughout the state of Missouri, um, but also into other parts of the country as well. And it was from there that those, you know, translocated populations of turkeys were able to grow and, and survive in those areas. And um, I think by the end of the 1970s, that you know, real trap and transfer restoration period was complete, but um, through just natural survival and reproduction of those populations, the the turkey population of Missouri grew and expanded. um, And pretty soon we had harvestable populations of turkeys in in all of our counties in Missouri. So it really is one of the greatest conservation success success stories. I know people probably hear that all the time, but but it's true because it took a just on a national level of the restoration of the wild turkey, it took multiple state you know, agencies collaborating with each other, non-government organizations like the National Wild Turkey Federation leading the way mm-hmm. with some of these efforts. Um, and so it really took a concerted collaborative effort among people to get the turkey back to where it is you know, today. Yeah, and I, I remember reading that turkeys from our state were used in reintroducing turkeys in other states uh as well so um that's it is pretty cool and i did i read about that rocket net today 
when I was kind of preparing oh, yeah. for our show, and I'm like, that the thing's badass. <laughs> I didn't I didn't see it in yeah. use, but it sounds really cool uh, when I read about yeah. it. But so Missouri, just because we did have remnant birds here, you know, we were kind of on the forefront, or were able to be on the forefront of the restoration effort. And so once you know we started being having some good success with the restoration in our state, we were fortunate enough that we could translocate and move birds elsewhere. And so, yeah, a lot of other states, um, I think like even my home state of Michigan and, and other states in the country can thank, you know, Missouri birds for really starting the restoration effort in their states, which is awesome. And you're right, the rocket net is cool and the technology really hasn't changed much. Uh, we still use that same technology today to capture birds for research projects and things like that. So, um, if a little quick description is basically it's a large net, usually 60 feet by 40 feet, um, but there's some variation there and it's propelled by three or four rockets along the front of it that basically get shot off by explosives. <laughs> <laughs> and it all happens very fast. You bait the turkeys into the area. And um, even though that met, that net moves quickly, um, turkeys are fast critters and there some of them are still able to get out from under it before it before it hits the ground so um, definitely encourage your viewers or your listeners not viewers um, to go you know on YouTube or something and Google and look up videos of rocket nets if they're curious about what that looks yeah, like I will uh, I'll definitely be one of them that's for sure um, now one thing I thought about when we were talking about using our birds to reintroduce into other states that just and you might not even know this answer but um, are there any states that you know of that had a population of turkeys that were different than the, I guess I'll call it breed, of turkey that are now there because they were reintroduced from Missouri? So, for instance, you know, unless I'm an idiot, we have Easterns. Yeah. And, um, you know, were states like Michigan mostly Miriams before, and now they're full of Easterns? Or... Are most of the states that lost their populations back with the same population they had before? So that's a that's a good question. So probably Eastern, pretty loaded too, but well, um, kind of, but but also not really. I mean, Easterns were historically the most widespread subspecies of turkey in the country. So, um, you know, states that border the Mississippi, like us, and then pretty much everything east of there, besides Florida. Uh, had eastern turkeys and florida has some but they also have the osceola which is a whole other thing mm -hmm. um so historically the only turkeys that would have probably existed in like michigan minnesota would have been the eastern subspecies they would have been limited um historically especially before agriculture uh, by snow cover to the north so areas that had consistent deep snow cover in the winter time um you know those populations would fluctuate um, and you'd have die-offs in the winter if they couldn't access food sources. Now that we have agriculture and there's a lot of supplemental food because of that in some of those more northern portions of the country, um, turkeys are actually being, you know, they can actually survive better up in some of those areas than they would have historically. But states like South Dakota that I worked in, um, you know, some of their early reintroductions or introductions of turkeys to restore the populations in South Dakota, especially in the eastern part of the state where I worked, um, the only birds that would have been there historically would have been the eastern subspecies right at that, you know, far northwestern range of the eastern. Um, but when we started restoration efforts, people would just 
translocate what was available. So mm -hmm. a lot of their early restoration efforts to that part of, to the Eastern part of the state were Miriam's, Rio's, things that maybe historically and based on the re records that we have wouldn't have been there. Um, and so there are parts of South Dakota that have, you know, several different subspecies kind of roaming around right. in one area, whereas that's not necessarily what would have been there natu naturally. But um, so there's a little bit of that. But since Easterns were so widespread, um, you know, I don't I don't know if there's Rio's in a place where Easterns would have been historically and there's not Easterns there. That gotcha. Yeah. And you hear always hear about hybrids. Um, like Nebraska, yeah. um, I'm not one of these people, but when you're talking about like the Grand Slam and you kill a Merriam's in Nebraska, some people won't quote unquote like recognize it because they they call them all hybrids or something. But um, yeah. and we did talk to a guy a few uh, month or two ago that him and his buddy both killed a gobbler up there and one of them looked exactly like a Merriam's and one of them looked exactly like an Eastern and they were right there with each other. So. Um, which I think is really cool. I mean, I, yeah, I'd be fun seeing different types, you know, different colorations and things like that. But yeah, uh, and there's there's a decent amount of like color variation even within the subspecies. So you can have easterns that are really dark, and you can have easterns that are sometimes a little bit lighter. So that you know, there's that variation there. But you're right. I mean, the thing to remember is that they're all the same species. You know, they're just different subspecies. So they are able to interbreed with one another. And anytime those subspecies ranges kind of overlapped, you're, you're going to get hybrids. And there's actually some really cool research going on right now trying to figure out like where the core subspecies ranges are and like where these hybrid zones are, um, trying to build out some more of like a genotypic, you know, thing related to mm -hmm. the different subspecies so that we can hopefully answer that question. You know, if somebody gets a bird, they could know exactly like, oh yeah, this is mostly an Eastern versus mostly a Rio or something like that. Right. So very, yeah. very cool stuff. I wouldn't be picky. I'm a bad enough turkey hunter that whatever had a beard in front of me would, would get it. So whether it's a Jake or not, as long as it's got a beard, I would probably, uh, so Miriam's or whatever, I'd, I'd be happy with it, but yeah. Um, so moving on into kind of the Turkey here in our state, well, I guess in general, this is kind of a general question, but we learned this on another show. We had a little bit that was surprising to me, um, back then. So I thought the listeners would like to hear this too. Um, kind of go through some of the top predators of turkey, especially in our state, obviously. Yeah, so I'm kind of assuming you mean like the adult birds, but of course turkeys have a suite of predators across all of yeah, the yeah, stages. Yeah, yeah, no, adults, poults, you know, okay. egg, eggs, uh, you know, all okay. of it, you know. Yeah, so we'll start, we'll start big and work our way down because as you get smaller, more things will eat you. So, <laughs> um the adult birds, you know, they have the fewest amount of predators. I mean, things like coyotes, bobcats, foxes, even some avian species like great horned owls are pretty notorious for killing adult turkeys. Um, there's been instances of eagles and, and other raptors, you know, so, but, but by far the biggest predator of the adult turkey is us. You know, we <laughs> account for most deaths of especially the male segment of the population every year. Um, as you, you know, younger turkeys, so the poults, pretty much anything I just mentioned will also eat them, but then you get some other predators too, like, um, 
some smaller raptors like hawks and things will go after poults. Um, even like snakes, if they could get a hold of them, there's been weird stories of all kinds of different things eating um, turkey poults, even like raccoons and stuff, if they can get a hold of them, especially when they're really small. Hmm. And then eggs, you know, even more things. So, you know, black rat snakes, you know, they eat a lot of eggs. You've got skunks, possum, raccoon, you know, any of those, um, you know, mid-sized mammals is what we call them. Um, I'm trying to think of other things, you know, bird species like crows will eat turkey eggs. Um, basically anything that comes across them opportunistically too. That's a big thing is there are some things that will seek out turkey nests, you know, as a specific source of food or will seek out eggs as a source of food. And then there's other predators that just stumble upon something and go, oh, yeah. that looks like it could be dinner. So um, there's kind of a distinction there, but yeah, turkey nests are very, you know, vulnerable to, to lots of different predators. That, and that's the one thing that I thought I remember hearing that was surprising to me is that I never, I guess, thought this, but with a turkey nest, so the eggs, someone had told me that raccoons will seek out turkey nests and actively look for eggs. And I, I just, I hadn't heard that before. I really hadn't asked either. So, um, you know, it's one of those deals and we'll, we'll get back to, um, raccoons and all those different animals at, you know, when we start talking about what might be going into the decline in our population too. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I thought that would be interesting for everybody to hear is basically if you're a turkey, <laughs> everything wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That is very true. I mean, that's why they produce so many young is because, you know, like only a small fraction of them are going to survive. Yeah. Um, unlike other species that might only have one you know, young animal that they raise during the year. So, so yeah, turkeys are a nice snack for a lot of different things. And then also very sought after by us. <laughs> yep. That doesn't help them either. Poor guys. <laughs> um, so I think we just solved the problem. I think the show's over. I, we're done. We did it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what's the solution? I didn't hear a solution. <laughs> stop killing them. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> that's not going to yeah, happen. Can, so, okay, we, we got to go we can on. We get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we got into the predators. So what are some conditions that might go into, as you said, a, a turkey will have lots of eggs so that hopefully mm -hmm. some of them make it. Um, mm -hmm. But what are some conditions that go into having a good or a bad hatch? Um, I mean, I, I've heard of many things, but what are some things that you see or look for uh, when you see good hatches or then when you see a bad hatch? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the past, we had, I don't want to say a simplified view, but generally people would think that turkey hatches were very weather driven. And so when you had cold, wet spring weather, cold, wet summers, um, when poults are small, that you would have bad hatches because um, a couple of different reasons. So turkeys, when they're sitting on their nest, uh, moisture makes them stinky. So when we get precipitation, um, the nests themselves don't really have a smell to them, but the hen sitting on the nest will, especially if she gets wet. So we believe there's this like moisture facilitated um, predation where predators like mammals can smell hens better when they're wet. 
And so they'll be able to locate nests easier. And either, you know, if it's a coyote, they might go after the hen on the nest, or if it's a raccoon, they might go after the nest itself. Um, and so that's can be, you know, there's this idea that precipitation can be detrimental to nest success. Um, and also poult survival as well. So especially those young poults when they're when they first hatch and they're in their first two weeks of life, they mostly have these little downy feathers that don't shed moisture very well. And so, and they live there, you know, until they can fly, they're living their entire life on the ground and they're very vulnerable. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, cold, wet weather can, because they don't have, you know, feathers to help them thermoregulate, um, they're really susceptible to dying from hypothermia. Um, so there was, you know, this thought that if you had a bunch of, you know, rainfall that would happen um, right after the hatching season and it would be cold, you'd just get a bunch of poult mortality through um, just hyperthermia. You're fine. Hey, mate, can we? <laughs> yeah, we've got people, uh, I've got people working at my house right now, so that's what you're hearing. Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry, like... listeners, you'll just have to deal with the uh, saw going on upstairs, but... Uh, so yeah, Reina, go ahead. It's fine. <laughs> like I was like, is that someone mowing a lawn? Like trying to keep. My it almost sounds like someone tooting a horn, but it's it's a saw. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah. So that generally was the thought was that if you had these wet springs, that you would see <laughs> poor hatches. Right. Um, we've been finding in recent years that that's not necessarily the case. So. Um, We've had some wet springs where we've seen poor hatches, and then we've had some you know, springs where we've had near-perfect weather to have a good hatch, and we've still been seeing poor hatches. And so that tells us there's probably more going on here. You know, the system is perhaps more complex, and, um, you know, we really need to delve in a little bit more and figure out what's going on here and what's really driving um, turkey production in Missouri and um, also, some of our surrounding states have been seeing similar things like this. Yeah, I read something that the, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I read something that the survival rate of a poult is something like less than 25% in its first month of life. Yeah, so poult survival during its first month of life, what, what, what might be considered good would be, yeah, like 25% or more, maybe like 30 percent or more um that's and, that's and that's a poult that's after it's hatched yes, which it doesn't yes. even have a guarantee that it's even going to make it to that yeah so that but that first really it's the first two weeks of life where they're really vulnerable gotcha. as soon as they can fly up into trees their survival increases exponentially so um when i when i was in south dakota and, and other studies that have done this you know we would find broods a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks after hatch and see how many poults were still with the hen. And it wasn't uncommon during those first two weeks where you'd see, okay, she hatched 10 poults out. Um, you'd go see her after a week and maybe she only had five. You'd go see her at two weeks and maybe she had three. Um, but then at three weeks and four weeks, she still had three. And that was because once they you know, hit that threshold where they could start roosting in trees at night, they were no longer spending almost, you know, no longer spending the entire day on the ground, um, which made them a lot less vulnerable to predators, especially at nighttime. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, polt, polt survival is, I mean, if 30% is like the normal, I mean, that's 
still sounds very low, but that's why they produce so many eggs. And that's, you know, that's kind of the reproductive strategy. They know the vast majority of their young aren't going to make it, but the hope is that a few will. Yeah. Kind of like the, it's the law of large numbers or whatever. Yeah. You know, the more yes. darts you throw at a board, the more likely mm-hmm. you are to hit the bullseye mm-hmm. um, at some point, instead of having, you know, like, like us humans, right. We have on average one child, <laughs> When there's a baby born, I mean, there's obviously exceptions to that um, Mm -hmm. because the chances of that child's survival are high. Um, Whereas, you know, a turkey has, you know, if there's (laughs) 25 eggs in a hatch, you're hoping a few of those make it to adulthood. Um, Yeah, and their their clutch size on average, so the number of eggs that they'll lay is between like 10 and 12. So... um, so yeah, they but the, but that's like I mean the reproductive strategy is kind of designed to hopefully get to that hatch point and then hopefully some of them survive. So that's why they'll attempt multiple nests if their first nest is a failure. Most of them will, um, and you know once that nest is successful, they know that only a small portion of those eggs are going to hatch, which is why they lay ten to twelve eggs instead of three. Yeah, um, you know like some smaller birds that nest in cavities or cup nest like robins and things you know they only usually lay like three eggs four eggs um, but they're assuming most of those will survive but ground nesting birds that are really vulnerable um, you know they tend to lay more eggs just to give them a better chance of producing at least one (laughs) and and do they tend to try to put their nests uh, this could be totally wrong but i'd heard this do they try to do they typically put their nest in kind of lower lying areas as well Um, so that's a good question. We're still learning a lot about turkey nest site selection um, and and what kind of maybe even thought process they go through with selecting where they put their nest. Um, Birds like the Rio turkey, they nest pretty much in riparian areas. So yeah, they'll put them more in like low-lying areas by streams and things like that. The Easterns, not necessarily, especially if, um, you know, they have other water sources available. So like the Rios and things that live in areas that are much more open, um, they are kind of pigeonholed into nesting in places that have all the resources they need, food, water, things like that. Right. But Easterns where there's more widespread resources, they basically, as far as we can tell, they're just looking to nest in a place that has everything they need within a relatively small distance. So yeah, a, a water source, um, some place that they can forage for food on nest recesses, um, decent enough cover to conceal their nest bowl, but we, we still don't really know a ton about what influences where exactly they put their nest because some birds will put it at the base of a tree with nearly no cover around it and other birds will lay their eggs in really dense, tall, herbaceous cover. And sometimes they're both successful. Yeah. And so, um, so there's still a lot to learn about how exactly turkeys pick where they put their nest. But um, with new technology like GPS transmitters and stuff, which we can get into later, um, yeah, I've got that. We're able list. to learn about that a lot more than we could in the past. Um, the technology was a bit limiting. So yeah, well, you know, you hear these, and this is just from people and experiences. But you know, these different areas might have, like you were talking about earlier, a bunch of rain in the spring. Mm-hmm. And if it's too late, 
then the the turkey's nest might wash away because of a, a creek or a river flooding and mm-hmm. and i'm sitting there like well why did you have your nest right there idiot <laughs> go higher yeah. you know or whatever yeah. and, and um that can happen i mean especially sure. if the best nesting cover um and maybe some more of our agricultural areas where it's you know you've got row crop and then you've got a riparian area i mean they're going to be in that riparian zone because row crop does not provide good nesting cover. So, um, well, unless it's like wheat or something, I have seen that or rye, but, um, but yeah, your typical corn and soybean, I mean, they're going to go for that riparian zone all day. And then if you happen to have some flooding, you know, that can be detrimental and and that does happen. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like they're, they have the, the brain a size of a pea or whatever people say. So it's not like they're trying to like, they're have this forethought to go now what if you know they just they're looking for the what they think's the best spot so yeah and and there is some evidence that they really don't put a ton of thought in it i mean we used to think that turkeys would go out you know hens would break away from their winter flocks and basically survey the landscape and figure out where the best place is and then say i'm going to put my nest there but what we're finding is that might not actually be the case um some recent GPS research has shown us that they might not even visit the nest bowl until they go to lay their first egg. So they might not even go into that area where they end up putting their nest at all until they decide to, until they're like, oh, time to lay an egg. I'm going to go off and do that. <laughs> time to pop um, a squat and this is where it is. Yeah, apparently. exactly. And that could be, I mean, there could be different strategies related to that. Uh, you know, hens become really solitary creatures when they're going through that time. So they might not want the other hens to know where they're nesting so that there's no like nest parasitism and stuff doesn't happen. Um, they might not want to spend a bunch of time in an area so that predators can't learn that they're spending time in that area. I mean, there could be all kinds of strategies for not wanting to visit an area before you, you know, put your nest down there, but gotcha. we just, we're still learning all of that, you know, yeah. um, which is crazy because we've been studying these birds for decades, but um, it wasn't until, you know, technological advances allowed us to get just a more detailed snapshot of their lives that we've been able to be like, man, we really don't know why they do certain things. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's harder to get that information when they don't talk to you about it. So it's, yeah, yeah I get it. Right. What I would give <laughs> to be able to just ask them, why did you do that? Yeah. Have a conversation <laughs> with them. That'd be cool. <laughs> Well, Why let's did you nest right next to this busy street? Like, what were you thinking? Yeah, yeah, you you might get some weird answers. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so let's let's kind of get into the meat of this subject, I guess you'd call it. I mean, everything we've talked about to this point matters, but um, you know, really, what we're kind of talk about is the decline in our our state and, by the way, surrounding states um, in their turkey populations. But I read a number that right now people estimate that there's somewhere between 350 and 400,000 turkeys in our state. Is that about what you think? Yeah, it's a really complicated question because it's hard to count. I mean, how many turkeys there are out there and their, you know, density can change so much across the landscape, but, um, we use like harvest and effort um, to kind of give us an idea. And then you just make an assumption about what your harvest rate is. And then you're able to kind of estimate how many birds they're out there, assuming you're removing a certain proportion of the population. So that's how we get to that number. Um, but I will admit that it's kind of crude and we are working on some better models that will give us a much more precise 
idea of what our regional populations are like across Missouri, um, and then also what our abundance is on a statewide level. Yeah. Well, and, and that that could potentially, when we, we talk about the decline in turkey population in our, our state, what I've noticed too is it, it can be very regional, even within a county, right? I mean, it could mm-hmm. it could be a difference between 20 miles from one area to the next on populations, but you know, definitely over the past, I don't know, we'll say decade or whatever, people have started noticing that, and I'm sure you've you've been approached with this question before, and it's something that you're looking at. And of course, you and I talked about this uh, as the subject subject of our show mm-hmm. is the decline in population in our state. And you know, there's people reading different articles uh, that we kind of discussed some of those numbers before. Um, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years, you're seeing a, a large drop in potential population in our state. Some people are not noticing really anything. Um, mm-hmm. And other people are saying they're they're not even here anymore. Or they're gone. So before I guess we get into some of those questions, bef- just kind of give a broad overview on, you know, what you're seeing in the de- decline in turkey population in our state and just kind of the basics on the decline and then we'll just kind of go from there, I guess. Yeah. So basically from, from our understanding, there's kind of two main things that have led to where we are now. So one of those is just where we're at in our restoration history. So we talked about um, the restoration effort of the fifties, sixties and seventies. Once that was over with those populations continued to grow and expand into new areas and, we saw almost near like exponential growth of turkeys during that time, um, kind of similar to what we're seeing right now with bears, which we don't really have to get into, but the growth <laughs> rate of the population was really high. Um, and so there were a lot of turkeys out there and there were, you know, their populations were doing really well. And this continued on until, you know, the early to mid 2000s. Uh, when we really reached our peak in abundance and and also harvest. Um, And then, so what you tend to see with restored populations, and there's a bunch of different things that contribute to this, but you'll, they basically will just have this really high growth rate where they almost end up overshooting what we would call like their ecological carrying capacity. So just the, the number of individuals the landscape can support with the number of resources and the amount of space available and stuff like that. And then you'll see kind of a period of of dieback because they overshoot how many individuals the landscape can realistically hold. And so we saw that happen, you know, in the mid 2000s. Um, And then, you know, we've kind of, you kind of expect the population to just plateau eventually where they'll kind of oscillate around this lower level of abundance than that peak abundance. Um, And you'll just see year to year or, Um, you know, five to 10 year fluctuations in abundance, basically through the rest of time. And and that's kind of typical of established population. So that's what we call our turkey population. Now it's no longer in the restoration period where it's been established and we're in this like post restoration period where now we have um, density dependent and all kinds of other dynamics affecting our turkey population. So that's one of the reasons why we are where we are now. There's that just natural period of dieback that tends to occur after restoration. But the unfortunate part is, you know, 
normally, like I said, you'll see that population kind of plateau at a certain level. Um, we haven't really seen that. We've kind of seen seen a, a continued decline. And mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with um, production. So we've done some recent research into like turkey survival rates, our harvest rates and things like that, and reproductive rates to figure out where are we now compared to where we were back in the 1980s when the population was doing really well. And what we found is our survival rates are nearly identical or perhaps better than they were back in the 80s, but some of our reproductive rates are a lot lower than what they used to be. So just the number of nests that are successfully hatching, um, the number of poults that are surviving that first you know, month of life um, are considerably lower than they were in the 80s. And we see this reflected in our poult to hen ratio that we do you know, every summer with our brood survey. Back in the 80s, you know, our, our average poult to hen ratio was around three poults per hen. And now for the last five years, we've been at or below one. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's it's not surprising that we found those rates are lower because I mean that's what that index shows us as well. So it's always kind of nice when multiple pieces of your data are telling you the same thing because then you're like, okay, we're probably capturing reality pretty well. Um, but yeah, so we've we've had this long-term declining trend in production over the last several decades, which could be due to a variety of factors. But then, um, you know, just just in our recent history, in the last five years, we've had these especially low poult to hen ratios or poor hatches, which has, you know, led to a, a further just decline yeah. in abundance just within the last few years. So um, that's probably why people are noticing it so much now, whereas maybe five years ago, they weren't as concerned. Um, but we have been, it's been a long-term declining trend in that production here yeah. in Missouri and and our surrounding states. Well, you, you don't have to be a math major to know that a poult to hen ratio of less than one is not good um, just yeah. because that means she's not even replacing herself when she dies or whatnot. And, you know, if you have a, let's say a local flock of 50 birds mm -hmm. and I'm assuming there's more female turkeys than there are male turkeys, just like most popular, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's half and half, but let's just say 25 of those birds are hens. Mm -hmm. uh, if none of them are replacing themselves with another turkey, um, mm -hmm. then that means all the males are going to have nothing to breed with potentially. And then you can see where that starts to snowball on itself. And before you know it in a few years, that populate, that population of 50 could be totally gone. Uh, yeah. So right now, I mean, on an annual basis, they're definitely uh, not replacing themselves. So, um, you'd have to have a poult 10 ratio of two each year to create a new male and a new female on average. Um, but over the course of a lifetime, so annual survival for hens is around 60%. So most of them live more than one year. So you, your hope is that over the course of their lifetime, they will produce at least one new hen, um, hopefully a new male and a new female. But you're right, you know, if, if that production, if that poll 10 ratio gets much lower than where it is now, I mean, we could conclude that they're not even replacing themselves over their lifetime, which would, you know, has obvious implications yeah. for, for overall abundance. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, w what are some reasons? So I'll, I'll tell you this, before you give me your educated answer, <laughs> I'm okay. going to give you my edu uneducated opinion. <laughs> okay. Um, so, good. you know, I was kind of thinking why, why are, why is our Turkey population going down? And 
just over the past year of running our podcast, from from my perspective, which is a hunter's perspective, so I look at it through those lenses, one of the things I've noticed is with the turkey um, population exploding again, uh, like you said, since the 1980s, it's really just, you know, been great. Well, along with that also comes predator populations um, going up and, you know, there's more coyotes than we probably ever had. There's more coons. There's probably more of everything along with the turkey that doesn't help them. And then we had a guy on a few months ago that is a trapper. Well, there's a dying breed right there. Nobody traps anymore compared to 50 years ago. So you have more raccoons around. You have more possums, more coyotes just because they're coyotes and they can live in anything. Um, so in my opinion, it's it's kind of like you feast and famine with the same stuff. The turkey population mm-hmm. explodes along with the deer population. So all the prey populations kind of go up and along with them are the predator populations, including us and hunting has been nothing but going up in popularity since the eighties as well. So uh, that's kind of, see, I I told you it was uneducated. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that's kind of like my thoughts is, is you just don't see people um, killing the things that kill them as much, but what do you Mm -hmm. see? What is, what is your educated guess on as to why our population is starting to kind of take a dive? Yeah, so you're definitely on to something there, and that's part of the equation is the predator side of things. Um, you know, we talk about like the 1980s when turkey populations were exploding, um, and predator populations were relatively low during that time as well, and the landscape looked a lot different than it does now. So it was kind of a perfect storm for turkey populations to really explode during that time because we just, we had a lot more trapping going on. And so nest predator populations were lower, predator populations were lower in general. And so, yes, as turkeys kind of grew and expanded, you know, there was more prey available and that could have had an influence on predator populations. But um, one of the other big things that you touched on a little bit too, is the fact that people stopped trapping. And that really happened in the 1980s when the fur market crashed and it was no longer a lucrative business. Um, you know, you couldn't make tons of money going out running trap lines anymore. And right. so without that incentive, um, you know, people just stopped doing it as much. And you can't really blame people for that. You know, you have to go where the money is, you have to make a living. But the reality was it just became less popular of an activity. So that had a big impact on on these predator abundance, you know, as well. Um, the, the nest predators, especially and things, you know, just really kind of exploded or have, you know, their populations have been increasing over the last several decades. Um, and then, yeah, during that same time, we've seen some pr- pretty broad scale landscape changes um, for a multiple different, uh, multiple different factors. So um, I don't, I'm not trying to point fingers. I don't want this to sound this way, but, you know, we've had some advancements in, in agriculture that have allowed us to grow crops in places that we typically wouldn't have been able or historically wouldn't have been able to do. And just the equipment has gotten bigger. So, you know, like field sizes have gotten bigger. And this is something that has affected things like bobwhite quail and pheasants that rely a lot on fence rows for habitat. And so we've seen declines in populations as that habitat has kind of declined, but it's also had an impact on 
the quantity and perhaps even the quality of some of our turkey nesting and broodering habitat in our more, you know, open agriculturally dominated portions of our state. Um, another thing that we saw kind of in the late 1900s was um, this movement towards less logging and like less active forest management, things like that. And mm -hmm. so um, a lot of people will tell me, you know, well, I haven't, you know, touched my woodlot on my property in 40 years, but that means that it's 40 years older than it was 40 years ago. And so we have a lot of forests, especially in the southern, more forested portions of the state that are closed canopy. Um, you know, people just wanted big oaks that produced a lot of acorns, which is good. I mean, that's a really good food source during the fall and winter, but closed canopy forests that don't have any understory cover don't really provide things that turkeys need other parts of the year. So, um, you know, herbaceous ground cover that provides, you know, nesting cover and also foraging areas for pulps. Um, those herbaceous vegetation really hold a lot of like insects, which are an important food source for pulps. So, um, you know, we've seen a loss in that sort of habitat as our forests have matured across the state as well. So there's, it's, you know, predators have definitely increased, but just the way that we've changed the landscape too by, you know, reducing a lot of the nesting and broodering habitat is we've really limited the areas that those turkeys can do those activities. So not only are there more predators, but there's less area for them to do that and, and really less area that the predators, you know, maybe need to search for nests because they know the turkeys aren't going to be in the row crop field. So they're going to, you know, hang out in those riparian areas, hang out, hang out along edges and, and things like that. And so it's like all factors kind of coming from multiple sides and yeah. we haven't even talked about weather yet. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say uh, you can't see me anymore because we turned video off on this one, but I'm patting myself on the back because I'm going to give <laughs> myself an A for effort and I did decently get it right. So I'm, yeah, you, you yep. can you can uh, you can give me a high five you, on that one later. You weren't wrong, definitely. Right. That's not, just, that's all I need. More, I don't need to be more right. More complex than just maybe one thing. I don't need to be <laughs> right, know? just not wrong. That's it. That's it. Yep. Yeah. There so, you go. Um, well, and you know, we can get into weather too, but we are not um, like the fur market isn't coming back at least next week. And yeah, there are probably not. <laughs> there are still trappers out there. I mean, we have a good mm -hmm. friend that loves trapping, and he does a great job. But for every Ethan McCabe, a friend of ours that is the trapper, there's 30 other guys that don't do it anymore, or gals mm -hmm. that don't do it anymore because you get like a dollar for a, a, a raccoon hide that you worked 20 hours on, um, mm -hmm. let alone the equipment that you had to buy to to get it. So um, that's not gonna come back at least anytime soon, the, the fur market and the trapping um, boom. So that's not something we can rely on. And we can't really rely on um, crop ground getting smaller again. That's It's not like they're going to stop farming and, and make them, you know, grow trees back and all that stuff. So what are some things we can do or that MDCs may be looking at doing to, to kind of change the tide of the ship back to where the uh the turkey is at least looking like it's going to stabilize like you said earlier and mm -hmm. not continue that you know that plateau that you want to see where we're right yeah. back to where you know we really probably should be yeah so you're right in that it's really hard to influence land use on a large scale but 
there are things that we can do to improve turkey habitat in places where it could potentially exist. So um, really concentrating on putting good quality habitat on the landscape is going to be very helpful, even if you can't make large changes in the quantity, but um, it would be really great to move towards that too. And the, the thing is, and I know it's it might sound like it's just a big problem that nobody can really fix, but it's going to take everybody who either has land or knows somebody that has land, um, all of us kind of working together to do our part to manage our properties better if we wanna kind of create a landscape that can hold more turkeys. Because that's ultimately what we've done is the landscape now can't support as many turkeys as the landscape a few decades ago. And so if we wanna see the turkey population, you know, be at a certain level or stabilize, then we need to create a landscape that serves them better. And so I would just encourage anybody that either has property or has a family member that has property, just any small management that you can do, whether it's um, doing some prescribed burning to create, you know, better nesting and broodering habitat, um, doing some timber stand improvement to open up your canopy and allow some of those forest floor things to flourish. Um, every little bit counts. So taking the land that we can manipulate and making it better is only going to help turkeys and is only going to help, you know, a multitude of, of other species out there that people might care about. Yeah. And that's the part that sort of surprises me is I would assume that in the vast majority of the most popular animal to go after in our state is the white-tailed deer. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people out there that do anything they can to make the pot or the, the, uh, property, they properties, they hunt that they, they can you or do stuff to, uh, better mm -hmm. for a whitetail. In which case I would have to think most of those things are better for a turkey as well i mean maybe not everything's exactly the same mm -hmm. but to some extent yeah yeah and so you're like okay well hopefully that that would help with the turkey you just you know we're not and maybe we're seeing a decline in the turkey or the deer population in our state too i haven't really got into that just because i i don't see that where i'm at i really actually don't even see that with turkey where i'm at either um i actually mm -hmm. see turkey in spots that i haven't seen turkey in 10 years where, where oh, I am now. That's really great. So I'm like, Hey, something's going good here. And my <laughs> little, my little perfect utopia, I guess. Uh, but, um, you know, it's on a 10 acre scale too. So all the listeners are going to hate you. for saying that. <laughs> yeah. like, Who's this guy? Come find my little 10 acres that I have and I'll trade you your 300. How about that? <laughs> um, so, you know, some things that people can do is obviously habitat and that I, that's kind of obvious. That's an obvious answer. You have to have the habitat for them to be there or come back. But mm -hmm. what are some things you guys are uh, starting to do? That's pretty cool. We talked about these backpacks a little bit earlier. Um, mm -hmm. So you guys are starting doing some studies or have started some studies already. Um, you know, kind of tell us about those and what these cool little backpacks are. Yeah. So we just started a cooperative research project um, that's mostly being led by the University of Missouri um, and also in cooperation with the National Wild Turkey Federation. And basically the, the purpose of the, this project is that we, we did a project in the past that, that showed us that nest success and poult survival are not as good as they once were. But that study wasn't really designed to figure out why, like what, why are those rates at low now? 
So we designed this new study that is going to look at a bunch of different factors that we've talked about. So landscape level, habitat composition, um, microhabitat around the nest bowl and in places that broods are using, predators, invertebrate populations, which is an important food source for poults, um, weather, all of this stuff. And we're gonna try to parse out, you know, what are the most important pieces of this puzzle and what can we potentially do to mitigate some of these negative effects on turkey production? Because, you know, if we find that weather is creating a lot of problems, obviously we can't have any direct effect on that, but could we create a create habitat that helps buffer turkey nests or turkey poults from bad weather, you know? And so something that, you know, even though we've been studying these birds for a while now, we haven't really been able to, or we haven't looked at yet um, in this part of the world. So kind of like Missouri and more mid Midwestern fringe landscape um, is what really good brood rearing habitat looks like. I mean, we know the basics of vegetation that's tall enough for them to have good cover and provide insects, but open enough that they can move through well. Um, but we, we really want to get a better idea of, are there certain, you know, vegetative structure or just landscape characteristics in the way that the habitat is laid out on the, the landscape that can give turkey broods a better chance of avoiding predators, um, surviving bad weather, stuff like that. And so our hope is that we'll be able to just better inform our habitat management so that we can hopefully make a difference, you know, for the turkeys out there. And you mentioned the ba the backpacks, and that's kind of how we how we are going to do all of this. So um, we have these basically little. Are you going to you're going to put turkeys in your backpacks? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to put them in there and carry them around. They're yep. going to tell us where they where they want to go, go this way. and we say, oh, okay, that's cool. So that's where you want to be. Got it. Um, but yeah, so we have these little GPS units that we can put on um, hen turkeys, and they basically wear it around their back like a backpack. So there's, um, you know, elastic cord that goes under their wings. Um, so they, they literally are wearing it the way your kid would wear their school backpack. Um, basically to, to put it kind of, you know, crudely. Um, and so we captured a bunch of hens over the winter and put these units on them. And so now we can track their movements um, in a really detailed way. So not only where they are in space through these GPS points that are collected every so often, but we also have um, accelerometers in these units. So basically that captures the speed and direction of their motion. And so that can tell us, um, not only where they are, but how they're using the areas that they're in. So we'll be able to tell if a turkey is just walking through a certain place and using it as, as a travel corridor. Um, we'll be able to tell what habitats they stop in to forage um, and look for food. We'll be able to tell where they stop to rest um, or use to use as escape cover from rain. Um, and so this will be really important uh, later in the year when some of these hens are hopefully successful and have broods with them. And we'll be able to look at, you know, where are these hens taking their broods? Um, what are they using to forage in? What are they using for escape cover compared to hens that are unsuccessful? Because we will have some hens that are unsuccessful. And so 
we'll be able to take a look at all of that and just get a much better idea of, you know, what, yeah, what part, how are these turkeys using the landscape yeah. and how can we make it better? Um, another big piece of the puzzle. So we're putting the GPS units on the hen turkeys that are bigger and they can handle that, that weight. But we have these really small um, radio transmitters that we're going to put on the poults when they hatch. So um, they weigh almost next to nothing and they'll last at least that first month of life, but potentially a little bit longer. And so our hope with that is that typically in the past, like I talked about earlier, you know, we do this brood level monitoring where um, after two weeks, we look at the hen and see how many poults she has with her. And that tells us, okay, five of the 10 survived, but we don't know what, what caused the mortality of those five. So with these individual transmitters, we'll be able to keep track of poults on a daily basis. And as soon as we have a mortality, the hope is we'll be able to go out and find that carcass or figure out what caused the mortality. Was it predators? Did they die of hypothermia? Did they starve to death because they couldn't find food and there wasn't enough invertebrates in that area? Um, and so there's, we, we really wanna get at that cause specific mortality of poults so that we have a better idea of what is killing our poults so that we can hopefully mitigate that and yeah. make it stop happening. <laughs> when all actuality, I think what you're doing is you're using this as an opportunity to really screw with hunters because what's going to happen this fall is there's going to be a bunch of turkeys with backpacks walking around and people are going to be like, what in the hell? Is that turkey wearing a backpack? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can just see it now, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> One last thing I wanted to get into, we're coming up on an hour here, but I we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. And one thing I read uh, before we talked was this problem is not unique to Missouri. There are plenty of other states around us that are having the same problem. And mm -hmm. one thing I've had, I've had people bring up before is, well, why doesn't Missouri change the hunting regulations? Why don't they do this? Why don't they limit you to, to one Tom in the spring or get rid of fall turkey mm -hmm. season or whatever. And you had kind of mentioned that that might not be the, the solution quote unquote, because there are other States that have tried things like that and it's not helping. So I, what sounds like to me is you, you're working on trying to get some information like this backpack program, the, the GPS uh, transmitters mm -hmm. you're going to put on Pulse to try to figure out why is our population dropping before we just start randomly maybe doing things that may or may not help. Um, yeah. So, so kind of explain why it's not so unique to Missouri and why that's not something that's really been done yet uh, from at least Missouri standpoint. So, yeah, so we have looked into, and we do keep track of um, on an annual basis, we evaluate our harvest regulations. And, um, you know, recently we did some research into what our harvest rates were. So in the spring, like what, what proportion of the turkey population are we harvesting? Predominantly males, you know, some a very small portion of bearded hens. Um, and then in the fall, that was what we really wanted to get at was, you know, how many hens are we harvesting in the fall? What is that harvest rate like? And, and is that harvest sustainable given our current survival and reproduction trends? And so, that was a project that was led by my predecessor, Jason Isabel, and the information that we got from that project, we were able to do some modeling that looked at if we were to change 
more specifically our fall regulations, um, would we see a difference in abundance? So, you know, if we made the fall season shorter or if we reduced bag limits or even if we closed it all together. So basically no hens would be harvested during the fall. How would turkey abundance in Missouri change? And basically what we found is we're harvesting such a small proportion of hens and the, just the overall turkey population in the fall that even if we closed the season entirely and those birds were still on the landscape, we really would not see a big change to our, our abundance at all. And even some portions of our state, we'd still see population declines. And so it kind of got to the point where it's like that fall season, except for last year, last year was an exception that was probably the COVID effect, but um, <laughs> yeah. we've been seeing just declining interest in our fall firearm season since the late eighties. And so we're not really at any big risk of suddenly one fall, we just harvest a huge number of birds that's unsustainable. So it kind of was along the lines of, you know, if we have this opportunity that fewer people are taking advantage of every year and we're harvesting fewer and fewer turkeys every year and it's not hurting anything, like we might as well just keep allowing the few people that want to do that, do that. Um, the thing that we are keeping an eye on is our archery season because we are seeing increased you know, interest in archery hunting, mostly driven by like deer hunting. But mm -hmm. as you know, the way that season's set up, you know, you get your permit and you can harvest two turkeys as well. So yep. um, we're looking at that just because, you know, it's possible we could see our archery harvest increase, but at this point, it's not a level that is really of, of concern. Um, but like I said, something that we continue to evaluate every year. And believe me, if we felt like there was a regulation change that we could make that would fix all the problems. It would have been done years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and that's something and so, I, I kind of like, yeah. you know, if you, if you're not sure, or if you're not, if you're not decently sure that something you're going to do would make a difference, then don't do it. And, I, and that's in anything in life, right? Not just these regulations yeah. that we're talking about, but, and uh, you know, whereas other States have, maybe done things like that and it doesn't help. And then you just kind of screwed all the people that wanted to hunt that fall or whatever. Yeah. Um, I so mean, it, one of a couple of our, you know, our old Turkey management plan and our new Turkey management plan. One of the big themes is that we want to provide opportunity where we can, as long as it's not detrimentally affecting the resource. And based on the information that we have, the fall season is not detrimentally affecting the resource. So we want to be able to provide that opportunity. You know, we don't, believe in taking away opportunity, especially not only if it's not going to create the desired effect, but if it's not having a negative effect. So, but yeah, we're going to continue to look at that because, you know, as, as, as with everything, you know, these population dynamics are changing and years down the road, we could end up in a spot where maybe it would make a difference. And so then right. we would look to make that change. Um, but that's something that we look at, you know, kind of every year and Something I haven't touched on yet is the fact that this is happening elsewhere. And, and that's true. Um, you know, so we have, there's like a, a, a group called the National Wild Turkey Technical Committee and every state's turkey biologist is on this committee. Um, and we have several meetings a year where we can all talk about collective issues that are affecting turkeys across the country and also engage in like collective monitoring and, and even sometimes collective research efforts. Um, just because, you know, these, these birds don't know state boundaries. And this way we can, um, 
just kind of also help each other out and make sure that we're all on the same page about what's going on and what we can do to help. So we have this standardized turkey brood survey we've been doing for a couple of years where we basically collect data and analyze it um, the same way so we can compare states directly with one another. So, um, you know, that's showed us that, you know, our states, our surrounding states too, have been seeing this poor production in recent years. It's not just a Missouri thing. And, and that's really helpful to look at like regional trends in turkey production. And so, yeah, it's really showed us that this isn't just a Missouri problem. This is something that other people are experiencing and other states are trying to solve. Um, my counterpart up in Iowa, they're engaging in a, in a kind of similar research project to look at turkey uh, reproduction up there. Um, there's tons of turkey work going on down in the Southeast, trying to look at some of these same things down in, down in the Southeastern United States, which is maybe more similar to like Southern Missouri in some ways. So, um, so yeah, our folks, you know, across the country are looking into this and it's something that we're all considerate of and kind of yeah. aware of and, and all collectively trying to figure out together. Good. Well, and you know that I'm excited and, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to probably wrap up right around there, but, um, I'm, I'm excited to kind of see as these results start to come out and as you guys kind of start figuring things out with these, these new studies that you're doing, kind of the findings you have, you know, it, it'd be kind of interesting, interesting to see mm -hmm. how, how these things are, you know, when they are surviving, what the hen's doing to make that happen. And when they aren't, this is what's happening. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, then you can use that information and then you can directly maybe affect that population, uh, going down and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. you know, I really appreciate you coming on and tackling a deep and subject that, you know, there's all kinds of ways we could have went and all kinds of different things we didn't even come close to talking about. Um, mm -hmm. but unless people want to sit on here for four hours, which I don't know why they would subject themselves to me for that long, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, it's just kind of hard to get it all done in an hour, but I think you, you did a great job of kind of giving us the breakdown as to, you know, where they are in our state, how they got here, where they're at, where they were and where they're at now and how maybe we can affect that number, at least plateauing. I know I don't, mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like, you know, our wildlife life populations have gotten so big at times that they're never going to stay there. Right. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's like when you're at your peak physical condition, right. When you're in your early twenties or whatever, <laughs> you're never going to stay there for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it, it'd be great, but it's just not, not how the world works. So, um, yep. you know, sometimes I don't worry so much when you start seeing drops. Um, but I, I definitely don't want to ever see my deer or Turkey like they were back in the late 1800s or whatever, where they basically yeah. were here. <laughs> fortunately with you know like modern wildlife management we would never let it get to that point like we're never going to be to a point where turkeys are going to be extirpated from missouri due to harvest you know if that happens it's going to be due to factors beyond our control like an apocalypse or something right so <laughs> so yeah because people ask all the time it's like how far are we going to let this go before we do something and the reality is yeah, we're not, we would stop a hunting season before the turkeys would be extirpated from Missouri, but we're not anywhere even close to that yet. There's still, you know, hundreds of thousands of birds in, in this one state. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. Some of the previous abundance levels were perhaps just beyond 
you know, what our expectations should be for what's normal, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, moral of the story, everybody needs to start trapping again. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> it wouldn't hurt. No, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, tackling, a, I guess, a touchy sub- subject sometimes with folks and um, kind of giving us the the rundown of what you think and the ideas that uh, are out there and just uh, some good information for people that are worried about the, the drop in our turkey population. So, um you know, uh, really appreciate your time and, and coming on and going over that with us. No problem. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast to talk about everything. I know it's a lot of information and sometimes hard to get it out mm-hmm. to people. So um, any avenue that we can do that is is beneficial. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Raina, and have a great day. You too. All right, that's the show. Uh, thank you to Raina for coming on and taking her time to discuss turkeys in our state. Uh, a lot of good information in there. Hopefully the listeners got something out of that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that I wasn't aware of that she kind of went over um, from the scientific side of, of turkeys in our state. So the only thing I know is I don't know why the, the population is suffering because I can't seem to kill one. So um you know, I know there's a lot of our listeners out there that are having a lot more success than uh, we are here. Um, hopefully, I'm going to get to take my son out one last time before season ends. We're recording this episode before the season is over. By the time you hear it, season will be over. Um, but my hope is I get to take my son out one last time and try to get one get get one for him. So, anyways, um, hope everybody enjoyed the episode, um, and we'll talk to y'all later.